Hello and welcome to I'm a Fan of That, a podcast about all things fandom told through objects, stories, and studies with a bit of silliness along the way. Your hosts on this journey are pop culture writer, journalist, and cosplay expert Holly Swinyard and myself, Viviana Simos, a public anthropologist and pop culture academic with a PhD in religion and popular culture. Join us as we wander down the incredible and intriguing path into fan culture, its history, the people who make it up, and the way that we look at this ever-growing part of our society. Fair warning, we may talk about some adult themes, use some adult language, and possibly get a little bit nerdy about the whole thing. You have been warned. It's a drum roll! Hello! (laughs) I think we just need to agree that I'm never allowed to start the podcast. (laughs) Because I can't take it seriously. Hello and welcome to I'm a Fan of That with me, Holly Swinyard. And I'm Vivian Asimos. And I think we could, I think I'm just going to just never start the podcast ever again. It's fine. It gets the giggles out. Yeah, we'll do it now. We'll do it now. Because, you know, we won't giggle throughout the whole thing anyway. (laughs) Uh, so today it's my turn to bring an object in, which is why you just had to listen to me mess up the intro. <laughs> um, but it's a really cool object and I am excited about it. And I'm excited about what it's going to help us talk about. Uh, and it is Shakespeare's Histories, printed in 1850-ish, mm-hmm. 1840, 1850. Uh, and it is the complete uh, collection of Shakespeare's Histories. And it's big and red and I love it. And it's got one of those cool like marble paper pages. You know what I mean? And you think when you see them and you think, oh, that's so old <laughs> uh, in an antique shop. And it's it's not. It's just a trick. Um, and I've got this because today I wanted to talk about what I think might be the first convention ever. Maybe. I think that's a bold Potentially. claim. It's. It's the oldest one I've heard of, for certain, and that is the Shakespeare Jubilee of 1769. Wow, so old, it's like nerds have existed forever. What? It didn't just come around because of the internet? My goodness. I'm shocked. Uh, Viv, how much do you know about this? Or is this something I've told you about and you've gone, what the Uh, hell are you It is something that you have told me about, and I went, ooh, that sounds cool. (laughs) But that being said, I am aware that fan conventions have been around for a very very long time and also Mm -hmm. depending on how you define a fan or a convention you could probably say any gathering of like-minded people could have probably been defined as a fan convention at some point but i'm very excited to hear about this one so i am just going to open a web page so that i can give you the exact dates (laughs) basically i found out about shakespeare jubilee by reading a book by the public historian greg jenner and his wonderful podcast, You're Dead to Me, which I probably have gone on about a lot on this podcast before. Um, But he did a whole thing about fan culture, and this came up, and I instantly was like, deep dive, I have to go and find out what this thing is. It's like, I think he mentions it for like two seconds, and then I was like, what? What is this? But essentially, it's... I'm going to call it a convention, because purely because of the fact that it was ticketed, it wasn't just a meeting and a gathering of like like-minded people coming together. You had to buy a ticket and it had like a program of events. Okay. And so like that for me says convention over like sitting in a pub and discussing Byron together, you know? 
Um, which definitely also happened, like the coffee houses and salons and stuff was that was going on there. But this kind of thing was there was merchandise, you know, <laughs> and like actual events and a, a costume parade and all of this kind of thing. And I'm just like, yeah, check, 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 check. That's a convention, right? Down the list. Good. <laughs> um, and I also love the fact that it essentially was meant to go on for three days. It went on for two because it was rained off. And that's so very British. And I think that's very funny. <laughs> that is like they tried to have this big event and it was like, nah, sorry, weather says no. So, yeah. What was the Shakespeare Jubilee? Oh, it's going to be an Ollie history episode. I'm sorry, listeners. It's all right. I got popcorn. I'm sat back. I'm excited. It's going. Um, back in ye olden times... Uh, <laughs> The ye olden times of the uh, 1700s. Shakespeare has weirdly gone a bit out of fashion at this point. Like, obviously, very, very popular while he was alive and popular into, you know, Elizabeth I. He was her favourite playwright. Very, very popular at the time. Very popular under the first Stuart Kings. And then you kind of have, like, Oliver Cromwell does some stuff and, like, makes the country band plays. Uh, and it kind of takes a while for that it to recover from that i'm sure there's some stuart historians out there going what are you talking about uh, but i'm not a proper academic so it's fine uh, uh but there's a society set up called the ladies shakespeare club i think i'm gonna double check what it's exactly called but essentially it's a group of women who really, really want to reintroduce Shakespeare and they petition theatres and playhouses and uh, groups and all this sort of stuff to start looking back into his plays, start putting them on, all this sort of stuff. And alongside them is the very famous actor, David Garrick, who was obsessed with Shakespeare. He wanted to play all the roles all the time. Uh, and it's one of his big things is that, you know, how many different Shakespearean roles he played. And, you know, he's played Hamlet, Macbeth, everything. Um, and so he and this ladies club, which was essentially a fan club, and I absolutely adore that, decided we're going to put on this Shakespeare Jubilee. We're going to have a celebration of the Bard and we're going to bring it back. And I think, and I'm going to just double check this, why I had to get the webpage up for the dates. I think it was to do with the death, birth, I don't know, some anniversary of Shakespeare doing something. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Look how prepared I am. You're getting the rest of the history. Don't expect me to remember dates. They kind of essentially wanted to commemorate and bring back the idea of Shakespeare, particularly in Stratford-upon-Avon, where I don't think at the time there was even like a statue or anything. He kind of was sort of the most famous son, but there wasn't. it wasn't like it is now. If you've ever been to Stratford-upon-Avon, it's Shakespeare land. You've gone into the <laughs> Shakespeare theme park and there's nothing else every shop is a pun on a Shakespeare famous line and you know you can go to the birthplace you can go to the death place you can see the bed that him and his wife had and all this sort of it's crazy shit um and also it has one of the best theatres I've ever been to in my life it's genuinely incredible uh the the R um the RSC theatre up there is chef's kiss amazing and I won't be a theatre nerd <laughs> today that's for another day but they essentially decided they wanted to put on this big event, which was partially to commemorate a unveiling of a statue that Garrick himself had commissioned and paid for and all this sort of stuff in, uh, I think, outside the town hall. <clears throat> and partially because they wanted to have a really big knees up and Garrick wanted to perform in front of a captive audience all his little soliloquies and monologues and uh, an ode to Shakespeare that he penned himself and, and, and this kind of thing. 
So yeah, uh, it's September, which I think is always pushing it to do anything outdoors in in England. Um, they they basically descended upon Stratford, and it's something like three hundred people, which at the time is a lot of That's people. A lot of people. It's a lot of people to like descend upon the town again. I'm going to put all of this in the show notes, was so the, we'll get exact numbers. Quick question: Was the town aware that this was happening? Yes. Yeah. No. No. They, it was organized. <laughs> It was organized with the mayor okay. and like because you never yeah, they know knew. in seventeen. Oh, I know. <laughs> it, it was properly organized. Okay. It was overrun. So basically, they took over the town. And when I say took over, I mean literally they made stage sets to like cover up parts of the town and things like uh, basically to make it look like you were in a theater on a stage the entire time. And it had like lanterns or sort of thing. Um, if anyone's ever been to Luca Comic Con in Italy that's kind of similar because that takes basically Luca Comic Con takes over the whole walled town of Luca in Italy and you have to have a ticket to get through the wall into the town to go to the event it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and I absolutely recommend doing it it's a bit like a very nerdy version of the Venetian carnival (laughs) Uh, but that's the kind of vibe is that kind of Venice carnival Luca Comic Con very kind of high drama event that takes over the whole of Stratford you have to get tickets. You can still see what the tickets look like. There's copies of them in the Shakespeare archives and they're amazing. Again, I'm going to show everybody what those look like in the show notes because I think it's really fun that you can still see the tickets at this event. And they had a play program like flyers for each day's events, which you can also still see. And everyone got given little medals with Shakespeare's face on them that were carved out of a tree outside his house. They did some serious damage to that tree. Like They were just cutting bits off it and just making them into things. More merchandise for the people. Uh, the thing I love most, and I feel really sorry for the town of Stratford that they were doing this, is that like each day of the event, they opened with a 30 cannon volley. Why? At 6am, 30 cannons, let's go. And then they'd have musicians in the street playing under the windows of the guests, playing pieces of music that were connected to Shakespeare while they got dressed and had breakfast. I want to go to a convention that has musicians playing under my hotel room. Yeah, I don't think MCM shells out for that, do they? No, they don't. Like, God, guys, like, what's going on? So, like, that's kind of just how the day started. And I feel like it definitely gives you an idea of how this event was going to go forward. <laughs> but yeah, there was so much happening. And the the first day as well had this really, it was more kind of formal there was lots of like breakfasts and lunches and because of course this is like what the 1700s so a, a huge amount of food is involved a huge amount of food and like formal dining uh, and everyone here is like super posh but i also really like the fact that traders have come along like again it's a convention like so people have come along to sell things to the people who are at the event looking talking about shakespeare and they've all got like some shakespeare merch that they've made <laughs> to sell to these guys and people who didn't have tickets are coming and just hanging out in the areas they're allowed to just hang out in because it's something to do and that just there's so many things that i'm just like yeah we still do that yeah. like who doesn't go to mcm and just hangs out on out, outside of the the walled off bit you know like, we'll just be down we'll be in that hotel you know the one that isn't connected to the venue so that we don't have to buy a ticket but we still get to see everybody people still do that you know honestly i absolutely recommend i'm not going to go through the entire like step by step of what happens every day because that's crazy i'll just talk about the key points but i absolutely recommend going and reading um it's on the shakespeare Tr- uh, birthplace trust have a breakdown of every single day and every single event that happens like hour by hour yeah it's crazy it's crazy <laughs> stuff uh, and i i love how 
the, the reason I picked this is because I absolutely love the fact that it is so reminiscent of shit that we're still doing like three, four hundred years later. And like people haven't changed at all. <laughs> and the other thing is this event was so highly criticised with that thing of, oh, you're not very, you're not taking it seriously. Oh, this is very stupid. Why are you all dressing up? Why are you doing? And I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I know, yeah. Mm, seen that, know that. <laughs> Recognisable, absolutely. Yeah, also they erected like a massive um, rotunda, like a big wooden rotunda uh, by the river, which was A, to be a theatre and to do Garrick's performances in, B, to have an orchestra in, and C, I think they have a masked ball in the rotunda as well. And I think we should bring back masked balls, firstly. Um, But also, again, that kind of idea of the sort of semi-permanent but purpose-built structure for an event like this. I don't know how many people went to Thought Bubble in the years... I don't know how many people go to Thought Bubble. It's a great convention up north. But in the years when it was in, like, giant marquees and, <laughs> and how difficult it is to be in a sort of prefab marquee building in autumn in the UK and me now thinking about, oh, imagine doing that in, like, the 1700s when you didn't have all the shit that we have, like, heating or plastic you have to shove through giant bustles and (laughs) yeah exactly and they're all also they get they get so excited at one point that they break all the seating because people are clapping and stamping their hands so far and like three people are injured during like one of the performances and you're like so is there a reason why it wasn't repeated uh i think partially because of the cost but i think also it was sort of seen as a one-off event Okay. Like I think it I think the idea of repetitive events is quite new. Um I think this was seen very much as a we're having a big celebration for this particular thing of having the statue put up and celebrating the anniversary of the bard and all this kind of thing. Uh it has been brought back in so I think I want to say the late Victorian era. They like doing that then Victorians. But yeah, like they, it's been brought back and now the Shakespeare Festival, which does happen every single year, uh, includes elements that were from the original Shakespeare Jubilee. Like the uh, So on the first day of the Jubilee, there was a walk up to the grave site where people left things and all that kind of stuff and like a sort of commemorative walk through the town and that still happens. People still do that uh, during the festival as sort of like the pilgrimage up to see Shakespeare's grave. And I think, I want to say that like the costume thing still happens, but I think that's sort of people who want to do that (laughs) it's not necessarily quite so organized side note literary pilgrimages to dead authors graves is both amazing and something i partake in and also so fascinating to me Mm -hmm. what i love is the fact that like again that's not a new thing like byron did that byron went on a like a tour of europe to visit the graves and homes of all his like bestie faves uh, in a very fanboy kind of move. It's very Byron for people who don't know. It's very Byron. Byron, Mr. I'm so sexy, but I'm also going to go and be a massive nerd at the same time is like peak Byron. And that is excellent. You know, <laughs> I get, you know, I'm not particularly a, a Byron fangirl, but I get it. I get it. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'll just continue to be over here like Mary Shelley. Yeah. Um, but yeah no I do think that the literary author thing is really interesting and I, what I really like about this is it just feels it shows you what pop culture was if that makes sense like we all know that Shakespeare was popular culture yeah like we know that but the fact that people were having events like this whereas the Shakespeare festival nowadays feels a bit like 
I think if you talk to people who are into popular culture, oh, would you go to the Shakespeare Festival? No, they wouldn't. They probably think that was a bit pretentious. They probably see it as a theatre scene thing or a historical thing or that kind of in the same way that like a lot of those people wouldn't go to the Jane Austen festival yeah or is there one there's one for the, the well the Bram Stoker one is just a goth festival at this point um <laughs> goth weekend everyone goes and hangs out with Dracula um so that's a bit different but I do feel like there even then there, there's a division between what those popular culture things are and what people going to conventions see popular culture things as and I think this type of one is like the Shakespeare festival as much um back in the 1700s as much as yeah people kind of thought it was a bit of a weird thing to do was very clearly people being excited about the popular culture of the time and resurrecting something that was popular culture a hundred years before them so it's kind of feels quite similar to comic-con that's why i kind of feel like it has more of this vibe of the comic-cons of now because it feels like the same people rather than necessarily the same people who are going to the shakespeare festival if that makes sense yeah if not to say they aren't but like we were talking about that kind of thing of um different groups having different ways of doing things this to me is so reminiscent of pop culture and fan culture now whereas i don't necessarily feel it's reminiscent to the shakespeare fandom fraternity whatever they are uh of I think it kind of harkens to a little bit of what we were talking about with the Tolkien society of this divide of popular culture as something that is silly and potentially mm-hmm. young. Yeah. While things like Shakespeare are old and uh, literary rather than pop culture, which, I mean, we both know that, that you can be both. But yeah. um, but that I think there's sometimes uh, a struggle and a divide. And, and I, I think there's also that when I talk to people as, as an anthropologist, it's always really fascinating because I'm also a nerd. Yeah. But there is this weird sense of when they're talking to me knowing that I'm a nerd is very different when they're talking to me knowing that I'm an anthropologist, even when it's the same person. Yeah. And even when they know the whole time, but it's that, that shift happens. And I think there's a certain amount of... It's a very paradoxical relationship I think some people with like nerd culture have where it's we want to be taken seriously, but not that seriously, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll be like, oh, yay, you're you're doing stuff. And then it's like, oh, but I mean, but it's all just fun. And it's like, <laughs> exactly like I, I will fully hold my hands up to the fact that I am. a, I love Shakespeare. I actually love I love Christopher Marlowe as well. I, some of my favorite theater experiences have been going to see. Ye oldie plays. Um, I think they're great. And I under- I can understand why they're a little difficult for people to get into. But mm. I think if you do, then you you there is a huge wealth of in- really enjoyable media there. Um, I think it's one of those things where when you see people who can perform it and perform it knowing what it is, it really hits it. Like I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. shit tons of, of Shakespeare plays, but there was one that I I saw someone do a Hamlet and it was the first time where I was like, oh, this is cool. And it wasn't because I hadn't seen a Hamlet before, but it was that these people kind of knew what it was and they were delivering jokes like jokes. And then it kind of made people go, oh, that was a joke. As opposed to if you deliver it, like it's a Shakespearean ye olde line, not understanding that, no, this is, this is a joke. 
There's an, there was a performance of Much Do About Nothing done in America, I think in New York, uh, where they reset the whole thing into, I want to say Harlem, and the whole cast were people of colour. Mm. And the way they did that, they didn't change any of the lines, they just changed the attitude and the atmosphere, and it wasn't stuffy and white and old-fashioned <laughs> and British. Uh, and suddenly the jokes make sense. And the line delivery makes sense because you put it into a way that people can understand because there's a popular culture thing. And particularly, I think for young people in America, there was a much more, it was much more engaging. Uh, And it was really good. I also really like the David Tennant and Catherine Tate version that was done a few years ago because both of them are very good actors and also very funny people. And you need Benedict and Beatrice to be funny. You can't have them be standing there like delivering these very witty lines in a kind of, oh, oh, kind of proper yeah. Shakespearean way it doesn't work um but I also went to see Dr Faustus the Kit Marlowe Dr Faustus at the Globe and they did a it was incredible it's possibly <laughs> one of the best things I've ever seen in my life absolutely incredible so funny so heartbreaking and tragic because of course it's Dr Faustus they even made that weird bit in the middle that clearly is written by somebody else where they got rid of some whatever Kit Marlowe did before he died uh, and changed it <laughs> that bit even worked quite well because they kind of just they kind of lent into that a bit which was quite fun if anybody doesn't know kit marlowe's plays definitely had rewrites done to them after they were died after after they died after he died and academics have argued about this for years but it's it's really fucking obvious when you read them (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think they did uh again i'm not i'm not a proper academic and i'm sure there's again someone going oh shake my fist at you that's such a flippant thing to say and i'll be like no i stay in my lane (laughs) yeah I don't. <laughs> I'm going to argue with them. Like, come here, we'll fight. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting that I think that people have kind of lost the love. I don't even think that's true. I think people are a bit scared of Shakespeare because you're taught it in school and you're shown it as this Yeah, thing. it's kind of this epitome of an idea of highbrow. Like, um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a big reader. I really... I'm into that kind of stuff. And so when I do talk to people and it's like, oh, I've read Jane Austen and it's like, oh, that's stuffy. And it's like, well, but Emma is hysterical. Like, (laughs) like Emma's one of my favorite books ever. Sorry. No, Emma's great. And we watched uh, a recent move like Netflix movie. That's Emma. And I had Tom watch it. And Tom was like, oh, I didn't realize Jane Austen was funny. And I was like, all of her books are so, I mean, all of them are humorous. um, Bill Nye. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that version's so good and it's so accurate to the book as well. It was. It was very good. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. But it it was definitely one of those things where I was like, oh, they captured this humor. And even when you watch like the um, Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, like the some of the jokes still land and they yeah. do deliver them as that. And uh, you know there is humor to a lot of her stuff, but because it's seen as old and stuffy quote-unquote it's the Mm -hmm. thing that is highbrow that rich people for lack of a better word would be reading or highly educated that it's seen as something that is therefore not funny or not witty or isn't something that is accessible to other people yeah i think that's kind of true of a lot of the authors we've talked about like it's true of byron it's true of i would say it's true of the bronte sisters which is ridiculous because actually if you read bronte sisters you're just reading the most melodramatic you're reading a soap opera it's like oh my goodness Uh, i love it it's oh 
crazy. And for people who haven't read Brontes, it it literally is like a soap opera. It's like evil twins and ghosts in the attic. It is ridiculous. It's crazy. And also, like, uh, it's very clearly Byron's self-insert fan fiction. And that that just makes me laugh every single time. And the other thing, people who who aren't me, who haven't just spent a long time researching into historical fandom, the Bronte sisters wrote what's called the Juvenalia, which is essentially fanfic about the Duke of Wellington fighting Napoleon on dragons in a made-up world that they made up. And when you know that about them, you then go, oh yeah, so clearly this is just self-insert fanfic for yeah. Byron. That's hilarious. Um, <clears throat> you just grew up a bit and so you moved away from the fantasy fanfic setting to the, oh, this is this is contemporary, which we've no- every single fanfic writer, and I will include myself in that, has done that. We know, we know. Um, but whatever it's fun who cares it's great more people need to read Jane Austen though because I think actually once you start getting into the depths of her work and realizing how much she's not only taking the piss out of society but also herself so funny so good so funny Jane Austen Uh, is one of my favorite writers it's speaking of going and visiting graves um I one of the things I do like to do when I travel is I figure out if there's anybody there that's famous that has been buried um that's cool I recently came back from a trip to Paris where I got to see Oscar Wilde um (gasps) And uh, I I got into a heated discussion uh, with nobody about uh, the fact that so it used to be a tradition where people would put lipstick on and kiss his grave. Yeah. Um, and they've put up a big barrier so you can't do that anymore. And I got very angry. Is it because <laughs> the, that. that was destroying the grave itself? It was destroying the nearby grave because people were uh. climbing on that one to get up, which I get, but then make it more easily accessible. Without, yeah, I think exactly. That would make it easier without needing to destroy gonna... the nearby grave. Because Oscar Wilde would have fucking loved that. Yeah, he would, I know. He'd, he'd have reveled That's why in I was so, it's like, he would have loved it. It's also this idea of cultural tradition and ritual, which obviously for me, I'm like, and it, yeah, it, let them do it. But And also anyway. I think particularly that's a really, I think that is something particularly iconic to a, a queer community as well. To yeah. Do it. And so of course it's kind of like, well, that's a minority group. And, and well, what's yeah. interesting is later we saw uh, Simone de Bolivar's grave. I feel very bad mm-hmm. for my mom. I dragged her. We ended up going to four different graveyards <laughs> we were there and i was like i'm i'm so sorry that this ended up being your trip it's just going to graveyards but um we saw simone de boulevard and their grave is just full i mean it's just covered in lipsticks and stuff and so it's like well clearly it's still allowed here but it's a different yeah. grave so like cemetery so i don't know if it was yeah seen as different there and because i'm a sociology nerd uh, we also hunted for Emil Durkheim's grave, and I got oh. to see that. And it's not as well prominent as like Oscar yeah. Wilde and Simone de Boulevard. It's kind of in the back. We had to like go along. It was it wasn't on a main path. We had to like crawl over graves to try to oh. find him in a different spot. But people had clearly been there. His name had been worn, so they put a different plaque up so you could still mm-hmm. see the name. And then people had left the rocks. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was so lovely, but that, so yeah, that's definitely something I do, but <laughs> yeah, I, cause I have, I used to live in Bath for people who don't know. And so I lived through the Jane Austen festival for many years. Uh, Bath is just Jane Austen land. Yeah. Uh, and you can't, you can't escape it, but it's actually quite nice because the, I wouldn't say it feels too... It doesn't feel like a touristy thing. It feels mm. like it's something very much that the town wants and encourages. And yeah, there is a touristy element to people coming and seeing the Jane Austen house and the assembly rooms and all this sort of stuff. But actually, 
it's really nice because it's people who are legitimately in love with this person and wanting to see everything and all that kind of thing if you get a chance to go to bath and see the jane austen house and to go to the assembly rooms and see them they're now owned by the national trust which is great yeah um because it means the fashion museum which is in there as well and has some incredible uh, regency dresses and stuff is going to get some funding yay uh hopefully well and i got to uh her grave is inside winchester cathedral mm-hmm and uh, we went to Winchester on just a day trip and we were trying to decide whether to go into the cathedral or not because it cost us money. So and we're cheap and poor. So um, yeah. but we were in the gift shop because we're not going to say no to that. And as we were wandering around, I was like, <laughs> why? I was like, why do they have so many like just Jane Austen books here? Like that doesn't make any sense. And so then I looked it up and I was like, oh, my God, we're going inside the cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't amazing. care. I can go in by myself. If that like saves us money, I will that but I need to go in. I, I'm such a weirdo though. I always get really excited when there's like a king or a queen buried in a somewhere you won't expect. Like you go to any cathedral in the UK, you'll probably find someone like really posh and rich and yeah. old. And there's a few where you find like particularly the the Welsh ones where you'll find sort of the Welsh lineage of kings buried, and that's really interesting. And I just gave away how much of a nerd I am, and this is such a tangent. <laughs> I, I love that sort of shit. I'm always really excited about it. I'm like, ooh, ooh what's this? So that that kind of thing's really, really interesting as well. But going and visiting like the graves of particularly like I think authors is definitely a thing. I don't know how many people do it for like your more modern pop culture. I guess like people like Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe probably have they'll they'll have things like I mean, that. And obviously you, people go thing. to Graceland. Yeah, I was about stuff, to say Graceland is a huge, huge mm. one. Um but I know most of the people I know who have done the pil- done the pilgrimages in inverted commas uh, tend to be for the older literary fandom people. Because, like, again, people go and do the pilgrimage to um, Tolkien, um, and that one's a quite a big one, I think, that people do. I don't know if your uh, in-laws have done that one. I'm assuming they probably, probably? have. Probably? I haven't asked. I should. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, like, again, like things like people love mary shelley and bram stoker and you know the the, the goths go all out don't they yeah. go visit a grave i mean anything that's gothic, we love you goth. definitely yeah. gonna... <laughs> i mean mary shelley's the most gothic thing like i'm gonna have sex with my lover on my mother's grave like what the hell <laughs> like, could you get more gothic and teenage i love it ridiculous stuff um but again it's all of that kind of stuff comes back to what like the shakespeare jubilee was doing is like trying to be like let's all come together and talk about this thing that we absolutely love in a way that is understandable if that makes sense yeah because i think for a lot of people expressing your fan culture is really difficult like how do you express it to people who don't get it how how do you other than looking like really intense and like we're going to 10 <laughs> graveyards today to look at things <laughs> <laughs> rather dragging their mother around to pour their poor poor mother <laughs> i'm so sorry mom it's okay. I I do it. To, I did well. I I tried to do it to my dad once, and he somehow managed to like completely derail me with ice cream, rather than going to like all the <laughs> okay, doctors' well, sites in Cardiff. I would. I mean, if she had distracted me with cake, then it probably would have yeah. been distracting enough. But yes, yeah. I tried to do like a Doctor Who tour around Cardiff, and my dad was like, "Oh, we could have ice cream and go over here." And I was like, "Well, ice cream, I guess." Yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, this actually brings me to uh, you talking about that. There's um, a whole thing with 
conventions that I think is really fascinating. Um, that there's a, a scholar by the name of Reginders, and I'm probably pronouncing that absolutely horrendously wrong, and I'm very sorry, but I'm white, so this is the best you're going to get from me. Um, but so uh, they wrote this thing on, it was not on fan conventions, but it was on this kind of tourism, this uh, media tourism and the visiting the grave sites or going to see where Harry Potter was filmed and mm. all of those kinds of things. Uh, as notes of places of imagination. And so, That's really interesting. yeah, so it's it's starting from this kind of French philosopher guy uh, who had this idea of places of memory. So we, as people, we don't have physical representations typically of social bonds unless we make them. Um, and so things like nationalism, things like the way that we understand our history aren't often in places until we make them. So museums are a place of memory. These are places yeah. of collective memory. This is where we've put our our history, how we understand it, because obviously people can understand it differently somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and same thing with monuments and stuff like that is it's a consecration of this is collective memory. And so Reginders kind of took this idea and said, well, if we can do it with memory, we can do it with imagination. And that makes perfect sense because actually you go to a convention or a meet or you do a pilgrimage or all this sort of stuff and that's exactly what it is. Like yeah. you walk into a Comic-Con you're like, whoa, this is the imagination of so many different people, the creators and the fans all here together. And I, th- I completely understand. When you said museums, I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's what's fascinating is that when Reginders was kind of talking about these kind of pilgrimages and media tourism, the place is really important, right? Because it's, it's mm. the physical manifestation. But what I find really fascinating about cons is the place doesn't really matter. Like, you can have MCM in London, and you can have it in Birmingham, and you can have it in Manchester, and it doesn't really change what it is. It just changes no. where it is. And it's this idea that we can kind of collectively say, well, this is where we're going to put our energy and this is where we're going to point to and say, actually, this is where our 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 social bonds are, where yeah. we can all gather and talk about Tolkien excitedly at this Tolkien event. We can all go there and talk about video games. We can all come yeah. here and talk about Genshin Impact or whatever the hell it is <laughs> that we're talking about now. What's really interesting about that is it's not even country specific while i think if you went to a convention in a different country there would be cult- slight cultural differences because mm. purely you're in a different country. but there would still be enough touchstones culturally of the fanness for you to have like 10 minutes of like thank you builders yes that's great <laughs> i hope that doesn't pick up on the recording i'm sorry there are builders outside my house so i can't do anything about it but yeah those cultural touch- touchstones of I understand what's happening as a fan. You might take a few minutes or an hour or so to get through the thing of like, oh, it's a bit different. I'm in Sweden or I'm in France or I'm in America or whatever. But actually, you're going to be able to fall into it being a convention and fans and doing fan things together really easily because you understand that. And it's sort of so it transcends that barrier of place completely, even transcending barriers of language and stuff, because you kind of like, well... We might not even understand each other, but we definitely like the same thing. So that's cool. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Another person drawing from nationalism. I'm, I'm getting really academic today. I'm sorry. Woo! But <laughs> another person. I did a, I did a history ass, like, lecture at the beginning <laughs> yeah, of this. We're, like, we're both getting in, in our. in our. Really sorry. <laughs> 
proving our worth in this episode. Um, but it, there's a scholar of nationalism called Benedict Anderson, who's like the guy for people who are interested. But he had this idea of imagined communities, which is his idea of nationalism, which is that the idea that if you are English and you meet somebody else you've never met before who's also English, you're going to share something. And that it kind of is made up because you know, nations and countries are all made up. Mm. Who cares? Um, so basically, that's the idea of it. But I think what's really fascinating is that that kind of carries over into fan culture. Uh, it's why I like to use the word communities for fan communities mm. rather than other words, because I think it really is much more of this Anderson's idea of imagined communities, because you you kind of have that sense of, oh, I really love Harry Dresden and I can go to somebody in another country that I've never met before who also loves Harry Dresden and we're going to share something and yeah. know something about each other and feel like we can connect on a certain level. There's things with that with conventions of when I was at a con at one point and somebody was saying that, oh, what's really great about being here because they were conversing with me about being really socially awkward and they were like but that's great about cons because I know that I can talk to anyone and we're going to share the same values and it's like just the sense of being there you're going to mm -hmm. have something in common to that deep of an extent and actually the thing that the one of the main reasons I wanted to talk particularly about the Shakespeare Jubilee wasn't because I find it endlessly fascinating and I do it's actually because I think it's one of the first times where I've seen a moment in history, and I don't even mean recent history, but like, like I said, 300 years ago, and gone, holy shit, I get this. You're just like yeah. me. Like that thing of like, there is a connection over three centuries to these people of, you're doing what I do. Yeah. And so that, that connection, that thing of understanding each other as fans doesn't just transcend place, it transcends time. You see fans in the past and you go, yeah, it might not be exactly what I do, but I get it. I totally get this. I get that you all walked through the town in costume and you loved it and you had bands and musicians and then you all crowded into this ridiculous building that could collapse on you at any moment <laughs> to watch a, a man talk about Shakespeare on a stage and got so overexcited about it, you did collapse the building. And that you all had a, a massive, amazing time and you didn't care that it rained. You know, like, that... The whole thing, and I've just looked at the number, it's about 700 people were oh, wow. official guests. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have all of that happening, and they're all so, so into it and so excited and so wanting to be part of this together that it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And that, I think you're completely right, that places of imagination transcend community to community, obviously, but you, you can connect it to people that you would yeah really across time to. as well yeah exactly yeah. that is such and i think that's such a meaningful thing to fandom is that, and i think that's why sometimes when people dismiss fan culture as like that's a bit silly and what are you doing or why are you so intense about this you're like well firstly people have always been this intense about it here's my here's my graph to show that uh, <laughs> look i have sources but also like don't you want to be able to connect with people who you will never meet in that same way you know like um i've met cosplayers from places like the ukraine and suddenly been able to understand the war better because that person is a cosplayer like me and it's like oh we have a connection we can talk we understand it and suddenly you get a more visceral sense of those are real people yeah you know it's not just something on the news and i think community groups whatever that community is 
we're obviously talking specifically about fans Mm -hmm. but when you meet or hear about or understand people from your community from the past or from other places you suddenly see them more as people because oh you're like you're like i am yeah this got really philosophical and deep i'm really sorry (laughs) it's meant to be a fun podcast i'm sorry (laughs) well as soon as you bring up benedict anderson it's all gonna go downhill is basically what happens we're done we're done (laughs) I said, I want to do a history one. And you went, yeah, that's fine. And then this has happened. <laughs> well, I always just, I, I I would be fascinated to do like a whole study on conventions, but I just don't think it's possible. You kind of have to do them within their own little pockets because they're all so different. But one of the things that I really love and um, it's, <laughs> I was, I was going to plug the fact that I wrote this article, but then I realized it's me shitting on uh, religious studies scholars rather than <laughs> so maybe, maybe shit, but I did manage to publish it. Um, but I published an article in Fieldwork in Religion for people who uh, have access to academic journals. But it's um, because basically I went to a fan convention during my PhD and it was not useful for my PhD because everyone wanted to talk about the con and not what I wanted to talk about. So I ended up just being like, you know what? Sure, I'll just I'll just do research on the con while I'm here. Why not? Um, So I tried to write an article about fan conventions, particularly that one as a, a type of pilgrimage. And then I tried to write that and I got critiqued very heavily for not showing up at the event planning to write about it. So I then wrote another article talking about how shitty it is that we don't provide fluidity within methodological research. But basically, if you're interested in that, I do talk about fan conventions as pilgrimage. (laughs) um, But then I also then complain about the state of academia in it. (laughs) I mean, this is not at all what we're meant to be talking about, but actually... There's a reason why I'm cosplaying as an academic and not actually one. Yeah, there's a reason why I left. Uh, yeah. There's a reason why we're doing this podcast. Uh, but, okay. I mean, they did publish it, so I guess Yay. they didn't hate it that much. <laughs> Although I think one of the editors was one of the reviewers on my previous article. So <laughs> I felt a little bad. Do you ever think that we're going to get in so much trouble for just doing this? <laughs> But yes, I think conventions are really fascinating. And there's this kind of whole thing about that we could get into, but probably don't have time to today for ritualized actions and pilgrimage and places of imagination and community sense of togetherness. But also what I find really particularly wonderful, and I think what is partly the beauty of the Shakespeare Jubilee one as well, is the temporality of it. That it's so intense and so wonderful and so collective and this incredibly powerful event that happens for two days and then goes away. Yeah. And then you're back home and it's all over. (laughs) If anyone's ever been to a convention center, and it's why I kind of wanted to bring up the rotunda and the fact that like Thought Bubble and other events tend to have things in temporary structures. Mm. If you've ever been to a convention center itself, it's like the most liminal space you could possibly be in because it's so horrifically temporary like you can change every element of it apart from like the outside walls to fit whatever event is going in and if you've been to it when it's setting up or when there's nothing there you're like it's just nothing it's literally nothing Mm. there's there's no feeling to it there's no heart there's no nothing it doesn't i have this thing about because i'm gonna get weird pseudosciencey but like the idea of places retaining the memory of what's happened there 
But convention centers don't do that. And I wonder whether it's because it's so intense that every time an event is in there, it's almost impossible to retain it because it's that for two days and then it goes. And then it has to be that again for two days and it goes. And God, if ghosts and shit were real, they'd hate it. Uh, (laughs) Can you imagine? Um, But like, I feel like these things are so, so you know i can't i'm doing an action and i can't describe the action it's just it is an intensity and uh almost like a burning heat to these things that mm. just happens it's almost like an like a like a little implosion of nerdy shit um that once it's gone it's gone yeah it happens and it goes and there is nothing remaining of it afterwards it's so temporary and i love the fact that literally the thing fell apart yeah the shakespeare jubilee like it literally just fell apart and it wasn't gonna last and the rain destroyed the the painted murals that were all up around the town and all of the like thing of making it into a a stage set was literally destroyed by the weather and the action of people being there and stuff like that and so there was no way to retain it it happened people went people left it may not have happened you know yeah that that feels Except for the fact that everybody, people remember it. Yeah. And that imagination, that memory or whatever is what maintains it, but the physicality isn't there. Isn't that... That's probably a ridiculously depressing and deep thought. But I mean, uh, there's also, like, that idea of the of the need for the physical is, I think, also the kind of underpinning of this whole podcast is this yeah. this stuff that we have these objects your arc reactor my book my scarf are all physical things that we can touch and hold and say see i do love it so much yeah. <laughs> and because so much of media is you can't hold media yeah i mean you can hold a book but the thing that's contained you can hold the physical but you can't hold book, your you... love for the book no exactly I can hold and a you book can't I hold hate as much as exactly. i can hold a book i love like... exactly there's a different reaction to the fact that i will go downstairs and pick up my copy of Shakespeare's histories and be like, damn, this is good. I'm gonna, I love this. You know, <laughs> I love this nonsense. Um, you don't want to talk about fanfic. Shakespeare's history is a fucking fanfic. <laughs> like Jesus Christ. But you know, like the fact that yesterday I watched the finale of the bad batch and this is going out long enough afterwards and it doesn't matter if I do spoilers, but I will say spoilers if you haven't watched it. Um, where my favourite character and I still won't say his name because if you know me you know um, had bad things happen very bad things and we don't know if he survived it was a cliffhanger we just don't know all the characters assume he's dead but we don't know Um, and I meant meant that I spent the whole morning hysterically crying (laughs) just not able to cope with this happening because I was like, what? what is happening? It doesn't help that I'm autistic and he's autistic and it was a whole thing. And, you know, but like, at the same time, that physical, there was a physical, visceral reaction with me to the pixel man on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I had to change my phone background because I couldn't look at him. <laughs> you know, I had to change it. I've had to put some things away for a couple of days. It really doesn't help that I'm still making this cosplay. I had to go from this moment of like, oh this is awful and I hate it to I now have to go and finish the cosplay of him I'm making to wear next weekend <laughs> oh it was real hard guys <laughs> but yeah there is a thing that I think it it's so intangible your emotions the thing itself you know 
there are words on a page or there's images on the screen but it's not you can't touch the characters you can't hold them they you know literally you're like Mm. grabby grabby at air but they are as much part of who we are and all that kind of stuff this is not where i intended to go with the conversation about this but sorry i like it i'm enjoying it it's good yay uh never bring an anthropologist to a history lesson <laughs> I-, I wanted to talk about hard facts there were going to be dates and numbers and then what's happened oh i did when you were struggling with the date it just reminded me of when i was doing my undergrad i had this one lecture that really gave a shit about dates like really really cared about dates all of the quizzes and tests and everything we had to recall dates of stuff and it was my least favorite thing <laughs> i was like i don't care i know they're important but i kind of feel like if you've got the gist of it then it's yeah, it's like whatever i get it i get the history that has led up to the contemporary and now can we focus on that please because that's how my brain works <laughs> i see you know what enough uh, you know enough about me to know that i i love history all history i eat it up nom 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 i listen to like three different history podcasts a week <laughs> kind of thing i'm a ridiculous human being but at the same time i don't remember any of those dates i'm just like okay cool so we've got like the early modern and the middle ages and some of the dark ages and prehistory you know like ancient history prehistory i'm like i'm gonna group it like that right that's very broad strokes <laughs> see i <laughs> you know i do I, as much as i joke around i do like history and i spend a lot of time with it but my husband is much more of the history guy because that's kind yeah. of his job i'd be really surprised <laughs> if your archaeologist husband wasn't into it but i feel what are you doing because he's obviously cares a lot about like british history which i am learning about through him because that's not exactly something i learned growing up because i wasn't here um and so he was talking about something about anglo-saxons and i was like so when were the saxons was that before or after romans and he was like okay Well, I suppose, like, American history... Again, this is a big tangent, I love it. But American history must be more condensed, because... Because it doesn't start until the 1700s. Yeah, and unless you're learning about ancient, like, Native American history... Why would white teachers in schools in America teach about Native Americans? Yeah, I I realised that. It was not... It was a... They were here, and then something happened, don't know what... It's not like some Vikings showed up at any point at no, any given no, time we either. We didn't and get like <laughs> They did though. <laughs> they they found Viking stuff in, in North America and I think that's great. I Yeah, crazy I mean shit. we don't hear the actual history, which is that when the first like pilgrims get off, the uh Native Americans could speak perfect English because there yeah. had been so much back and forth already yeah. up until that point. But no, we get the first people here were pilgrims. So it's why I have a very troublesome his- like situation yeah. with history because every time I read something I'm like cuz okay a, a nice uh, the way that an anthropologist thinks about history when we go through museums is every time I'm looking at the little plaques or I'm reading a certain thing or I look at the artifact it's like why are you here? Well, who decided that this was the perspective that they were going to have or that this object belongs in this section and not a different section? And it's because it's all what some dude in an office thought about it, because that's just what it all comes down to. And that's why there are statues being torn down. (laughs) This isn't about it kind of is actually, you know, this is fan culture, community, blah, 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 museums. We've come full circle. Yes. (laughs) 
Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. But it is, I think it's important that everything is a story. And in that sense, things like these events, I think, are really wonderful because you can connect to that story. History is something that you can connect to the story or you can hate the story and and reject it visibly and and forcibly. Um, Or you can embrace it or you can love it or you can feel connected to it because they're all just it's all just stories. It's just stories with stuff that's been in the dirt. I'm sure Tom's so pleased that you described it like it's that. Right. He's not going to listen to this. He never listens to my podcast. So it's fine. Just no oh, one tell that. him. <laughs> but it is, you're right. It is also, and I think Meiko was saying that thing of finding stories and finding people in the past where you can suddenly understand it. Yeah. And like museums, I find really interesting places and talking about places of memory. I think museums should be places of imagination as much as they are places of memory. Because you should be able to go into a museum and not just learn about those people but be able to gain an understanding of them Mm. and that involves taking a certain imagination like a jump in your imagination to do that um there is an amazing museum experience up in york uh which has the it's like a are you talking about the york yes yes i loved it yeah so i really liked that because you got to kind of i mean to be fair I'm just going to put out this. I just had top surgery and I was super high on the medication. (laughs) So like it was a, it was a whole thing. Um, I was just like up in York recovering and I was like, we could go do that. That sounds fun. You know, get out of the house. So, you know, I think I've had a special experience of Jorvik. Um, (laughs) But it's like a little ride and you go through and they tell you what people are doing and they have like the, the like animatronics and stuff. Uh, And they've recreated a Viking village. Uh, well, town, I guess, uh, from what they found in an archaeological site. I love that kind of stuff. Like, I always liked on Time Team when they did the recreations to show you what the people would be like. Yeah. More living history, basically. That's how people yeah. are going to care about it. <laughs> because, again, you get that imagination thing. You're suddenly interacting with things in a physicality or in a way that is not just mm. some stuff in the dirt or some stuff in a museum with a label. You're kind of suddenly thinking about the people and the stories of the people which is what conventions and events and stuff are doing you're connecting with other people's stories because you have a point of interest and i kind of hope that maybe living history might do that i don't know well i think what we're really getting to is that we need to have another shakespeare jubilee yeah absolutely i want one (laughs) i want a really big one and i want it to be not just people putting like there have been the shakespeare festivals and stuff are really cool and i have been to one uh, and I, they obviously do the big sort of Shakespeare event things. Like I think for the 400th anniversary, they did lots and lots of plays and stuff like that. And that's all well and good. But I kind of feel that actually something like this, where it's much more interactive and you actually go and you're not just sitting in the audience, would and has that convention thing of like milling around and being part of it, being able to move through things in a kind of living history way, would be more accessible to people who didn't necessarily know that much about Shakespeare or Mm. weren't necessarily that interested in Shakespeare because a it would be more of an event that you could go to and partake in whether you were interested or not because it might you know that thing of people you know you just kind of go oh that looks like it might be a fun day out we'll go whereas you're less likely to think that about going and sitting in a theatre for two hours fair and i do think that a lot of stuff to do with these things like jane austen like shakespeare 
history in general where people think it's a bit stuffy or a bit difficult to learn and it's all dates and all that kind of stuff the more you make it that people are able to have these interactions and able to connect to the story in some way and able to learn oh this is people just like me and i'm really interested in oh this is actually what the story that's being told here is in a way that's very very accessible to pretty much anybody because i don't know how many people have done living history events but if you ever go to them it's really interesting because you essentially go and stand in a tent in a field somewhere uh, and move around to other tents in a field and there's somebody in there who teaches you something and it smells weird and you've got all the <laughs> interesting stuff and like somebody will be like oh in the past we did you know they'll talk as if they are that person and i come from a background my mum does historical reenactment so i've been to a lot of these things um but it does give you a point of like oh this is really interesting and it's not just a plaque in a museum you know and you're just kind of walking around and yeah. kind of quiet whispering to each other which museums do tend to feel a bit like um so yes more shakespeare jubilee more living history please give me more of this because i think it would be good for people to understand i and... want to destroy a stage <laughs> Yes, that's what I want to do. I want to destroy a rotunda by a by a lake, river, whatever, and uh, somehow everyone miraculously gets out alive. You know. <laughs> I kind of didn't get into half the history stuff I wanted to talk about, but that's fine because we talked about other more interesting things. Well, we've got the all of your uh, references yes. linked in the show notes for people who uh, do go were upset them. about my contemporary uh, shoe-ins <laughs> and didn't want to hear more about the history. Uh, there is, it's really, really fascinating. And the amount of uh, information that's on there is, is the fact that they kind of have this much information about it kind of shows how well documented it was mm. as an event. Um, and I think that's interesting in and of itself um but i also like the fact that the things that some things which maybe or may not didn't happen because they were planned but then the rain got rid of them like the the major costume thing there's still like etchings and stuff of because they were sort of done in advance (laughs) and things like that which is really cute oh they were kind of to illustrate what was going to happen um i i like that uh i also like how much of like it was documented because you're in the period where people actually start caring about it because you can do printing and literacy is going up and it's great. I like the 1700s. People start documenting things more, <laughs> like random things, uh, not just like the other. Everyone was documenting, like stuff was being documented before, but once you get more people who are able to like read and write, it gets weird. I love that. <laughs> oh, this is this is why I'm not allowed to go and study history. You can't just write. It got weird in an essay. Yeah. Given. <laughs> and then some shit went down. Some shit went down and some people died. And now we're here. <laughs> what? It's all right. I spent most of my time just being like, this thing happened and it's cool. That's it. I got nothing else to say about it. Oh my God. We should stop because this has gone on so many tangents. I have enjoyed myself immensely doing this. <laughs> And I apologise profusely to the listeners who are like, what the hell are you guys on today? Um, Please go to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust website and take a look at all of this stuff. And please, if you have the chance, do actually go and see some Shakespeare. Preferably good Shakespeare. Um, The RSC is obviously quite good. That's sort of the point of them. But take take the opportunity because it is good. And there's a lot of dick jokes and nobody, nobody wants to talk about how many dick jokes there are. There are so many. 
There's also a lot of other fun ways into it if if you struggle. Like I know there's um mm-hmm. a comedy group in America. I don't know if they've got a branch here, oh, but improvised yeah. Shakespeare is yes. also like a way if you know you kind of want a more obviously comedic way in, and mm-hmm. then you can kind of explore from there. Yeah, and if you're interested in Jane Austen and you want to weigh into that, then uh there is the Jane Austen comedy troupe who are called Lost... No. Oh, gosh. I'll look I'll look them up and I'll link that as well because they're very, very funny and they have a Radio 4 show as well, which means you can listen to it on the radio. Uh, and they do improvised Jane Austen stories where they kind of make up the whole thing, but in her style with her types of jokes. And it's, Everyone's it's going on walks. Yeah, exactly. And they're very, very funny. Um, I definitely recommend those. Um, There's definitely a way into Jane Austen that you wouldn't expect. Um, but also like I would totally recommend people watching things like 10 Things I Hate About You or She's the Man or The Lion King which are all Shakespeare's stories just retold in different contexts with lions Um, all of them have lions (laughs) all of them have lions Uh, Clueless definitely that's Emma so there you go Uh, there are so many excellent versions of these stories that people may not even realise are those stories being retold which is cool um, and if you're in the mood, definitely watch the Kenneth Branagh version of Much Do About Nothing because it is so ridiculous and fun. And Keanu Reeves <laughs> oiled up and being evil is hilarious. Um, it's it's the strangest production I've ever seen. It's definitely worth a watch. If you're interested in oh, the other thing I would also recommend watching is Upstart Crow which is a comedy on BBC Two, which is all about Shakespeare. And again, does a really good job of giving people an in to Shakespeare and his life and the times. But in a really easy comedic way, uh, it's written by Ben Elton, who wrote Blackadder. So if you like Blackadder, you're going to like this. They're very similar. Uh, Also, uh, in fun news, I finished my book. So we will shamelessly be promoting that soon. (laughs) Um. It's awesome. I was really excited I finished it. And I know. I, I, I just so listeners know, I did try to push you to not record today so you could enjoy a day off. It doesn't work. I don't do that. I literally had a meeting yesterday for a new project because I can't stop. <laughs> and I'm gonna go make cosplay now because I physically can't stop and I'm working this weekend as well. So ah. uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to us ramble about this and talk about history and Shakespeare and engaging with imagination and people from the past and how people from the past are just like us. They're just big nerds. Just they didn't have running water and indoor plumbing. So, you know, (laughs) maybe not quite just like us. But if you have enjoyed this, please listen next time when we'll be back. Maybe slightly more complimentous and not just finishing a book and having finished work at 2am. Yeah, maybe. 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 No promises. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember to like, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast and do give it a share. Tell your friends, family, fellow fans, get the word out however you feel like you can. You can follow us on social media. Links are in the show notes, as well as some links to further reading for anyone who might be interested. Music for this episode was Nowhere Land by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This episode was produced by Vivian Asimos and Holly Sawyer.